Amen. Y'all can grab a seat. What a hope we have in the one who has conquered death. Amen. Guys, this morning I'm excited to have a guest a preacher uh, here to share with us. His name is Dr. Philip Nation, not Nathan, but Nation. Uh, he is the vice president and of Bible publisher uh, for Thomas Nelson. Uh, he holds a doctor of ministry from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the second best uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary next to Southern. Uh, <laughs> uh, Philip has edited and contributed to over two dozen books and Bible studies. Uh, he's a frequent speaker in churches and conferences uh, domestically uh, and abroad. He has served as a pastor, uh, as a minister of education, a church planter. Uh, he previously worked for Lifeway. Uh, Christian Resources, uh, and the Baptist World Alliance. Uh, he has taught in universities and seminaries, including Houston Baptist University, uh, Kiev University Theological Seminary, uh, and Union University. Philip's wife is named Angie. She's here with us as well. They were married uh, in 1994. Uh, they have two sons, Andrew and Chris, uh, in Florida and in Texas, uh, grown sons. And so that is Philip. Uh, Excited to hear from him this morning, so would you give it up for Philip? Thanks, my friend. Well, thank you so much uh, for a, a gracious introduction. You read it just like I wrote it. <laughs> uh, it, it is, it's always an honor when I get the opportunity to, to preach and to, sh and, uh, to serve a congregation, and so I am uh, appreciative that Angie and I got to be here with you guys to visit with our longtime friends, Bretta and Rusty Spruill, uh, which we've known for uh, a hot minute, and and got to have dinner with them last night, and then that your pastor was uh, kind enough to allow me to, uh, to share the word with you this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I, I'll encourage you to turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible, whichever generation uh, of which you are a part. Uh, to the to the little book of First John. If you're a little bit new to Bible study, just go to the end of the Bible. If you get to the to the book of Revelation or maps, you've gone too far. Uh, right before Revelation is the one chapter book of Jude. Before it are First, Second, and Third John. And if you'll find your way over to First John, we're going to spend a little bit of time there this morning, uh, considering uh, the idea of what we know. Uh, as as you've been thinking through this and your pastors have talked about it, even in this worship service, there's a lot of unknown things that have happened in in the over the last number of months. And I was thinking about this. Angie and I had the opportunity uh, last weekend. I was preaching at a church in uh, in the Detroit, Michigan area. And as I had been thinking about uh, kind of the unknowns that that church had been going through, because they're a church plant and just a few years old, and so they're constantly thinking about what might happen next. And, and I thought about these kind of unprecedented times that we've lived in, which I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get back to precedented times. Um, and, and I thought about 2020 and how all of the things that had happened, I mean, we, we've had more uh, hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, then there are letters in the alphabet, so we've moved to the Greek alphabet to name them. Uh, there's been wildfires on the West Coast. Uh, there's been this little election cycle that we've been through. And who would have ever guessed, like if you could go back in time and somebody was to sit you down and say, I want you to understand that during the year 2020, there's going to be a phenomenon that's going to hit the United States of America called murder hornets, 
And that's going to be the least thing that you have to worry about. I mean, it's been a little crazy. And so I I wanted to anchor our thoughts this morning in the idea about what we actually know. So if you'll look with me in the very first verses of 1 John chapter 1, and then after I read uh, verses 1 through 4, then we're going to go to the last four verses of the book that are in chapter 5. John opens up this letter to these early believers in 1 John 1, 1. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify it to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Perhaps you have felt like your joy has been a little incomplete lately because of pandemic, because of insecurity with your job, because of just not knowing what's going to happen next with your health, because of maybe crisis in the family. Here we have that, that, that the word of life, that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, has been made manifest, has shown himself to us, and John is reminding the early believers and thereby reminding us, he says, I want your joy to be complete. It can be complete if you will look to him. If Then you'll skip over to the, the end of the book, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time this morning. John chapter five, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, and he, he tells us what it is because our joy can be complete, because we know the Son, what it is that is true. He says in verse 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, Before I go any further, let's pause and pray. Father, what it is that we do not know, we pray that you'll teach us. God, what it is that we are not yet equipped to do for your kingdom, we pray that you'll give to us. And Father, who it is that we are not yet in terms of looking like Jesus, we pray that you will shape us, that you will help us to be more and more like your Son, who is our Messiah, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. The, the letter of 1 John has one of what I think to be one of the most unusual endings of all of the books of the Bible. There are some places where a book of the Bible will, will land 
in a place that you, you, you see coming, you know exactly how it's going to happen. Many of the letters that are from the Apostle Paul, they end with a, a doxology of sorts or a sign-off where he's saying, and, and tell this person I said hello, and tell that person to try to behave better, and, and don't forget that God can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think or imagine. I mean, he, he ends oftentimes with those kind of doxological statements, but here, John, uh, a man who had walked with Jesus, ends his first letter in, in this kind of almost blunt, forced trauma kind of way where he says, oh, and by the way, kids, little children is how he refers to the church. He says, and keep yourselves from idols. You know, after five chapters of, of re-examining the idea of the beauty of Christ, and he's actually writing into an environment and into a culture of believers where there were some heretics that had already begun to sprung up, uh, some people who had false teachings that they were spreading around about having to have a special amount of knowledge. If you really wanted, if you wanted to be a real Christian or you wanted to be a really deep Christian, you had to have this special little bit of knowledge that they had and they would pass along to you. And, uh, but you had to be in the club and know the secret handshake in order to get it. And, and so John is reminding all of the believers, no, we all have access to the fullness of who Christ is. And, and, and so he says, and by the way, Keep yourself away from idols. I don't think that it's just a thrown-in idea or uh, you know, just kind of a throwaway idea. I think it's a final shot across the bow, as it were, to teach us that, that, that we, are, uh, we are not the people who are sitting in a losing position when it comes to a life of faith. That yes, that, that the external of our life is difficult, that there are forces around us that are going to squeeze us in, but that we can sing the songs like Paul did, even when you're in prison, that you can be reminded that even though that we are oppressed or we are persecuted or that there is pressure because of just the harshness and the hardness of life, that we can still keep ourselves pure and unstained and undefiled, completely, solely, utterly given over to Christ. And so John ends this letter to the early church by, by reminding them of three things that we all know and then this warning of keeping ourselves away from idols. I think that they are related. The first thing that he reminds us is that we know we are protected. There in verse 18, he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Uh, you and I have been given a new life. We have been born of God. And, and we, the, the gathered people of God, who, who we get together on Sunday mornings and we sing these songs and we, and we pray these prayers and we go to Bible study together and we give our OCC boxes and we serve our community together and, and we're in this thing you know, to the end with one another. This is... This is rudimentary. It is elementary. It is almost, a, it feels like a little bit of a pedestrian statement to say, and don't forget that you have a new life in Christ. But you and I, we all know that there are many days that pass through this life where we pray for, you know, our grandma who's sick, or we pray for our company uh, to not lay us off, or we pray for success in a particular ministry endeavor. And we pray for the litany of needs, and we even pause to give thanks to God that there's food on the table and that there is still a paycheck coming in and that he protected us from you know, catastrophe in that one instance. But, 
but there needs to be this daily reminder in our lives, but I am new. I have been given a new life. I have inherited a salvation that I did not pay for. I have inherited a redemption, which, which was nothing of anything that I did, and that I am utterly protected. And he is dealing with this idea that there will not in the life of a new believer, a new person, somebody who has been transformed, that there would be flagrant and continuous sin. He's saying this is not how we... And for those of you who just heard a noise, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. He's telling, you didn't get your OCC box in on time. All right, we're all okay. Everybody okay? Okay. He, he's asking that we as believers would test our convictions. Do I really trust that God has protected me? And when he says that, that the one who is born of God has been protected, it is a fortress-like language. You know, that, there's the, the old hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark ever prevailing. It is, we don't have just like the, you know, the person who is part-time, barely got our, his eye on the ball watching out over us, but rather it is the king of creation. It is, the, it is the one who resides in glorious splendor and power that has transformed you and is protecting you. And when we give ourselves over to the idols of this world, to flagrant and continuous sin, we need to be reminded that we have a God who is eternal and who is wonderful and who is beautiful that needs to keep all of our raptured attention. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 17, uh, this is, uh, it records the longest of all the prayers that we have recorded from Jesus in the Bible, often referred to as the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. The whole thing is a prayer from Jesus. And, and at the very beginning of the prayer, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom have give, you have given him. You know, Jesus is not you know, just a stray and a strangler, a straggler who may or may not help you out, but he is the one who has been given all authority over all flesh. And the conviction that you feel in your life when there is sin, even when there is persistent sin, is from the presence of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the Trinitarian form of God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in you drawing you unto himself. If you went uh, to the little book of Jude that's right before the book of Revelation, so Jude the second to the last book of the Bible, it says in Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able to present us blameless because the blood of Christ has satisfied the sin debt that is necessary to cover our lives. And so we can be presented blameless at the, at, the, at the very judgment seat of God. But He can also, in this life, keep you from stumbling. He is here to protect you. And all of the idols of our lives give us all sorts of false hope for satisfaction. But they all fail whether it was that you wanted to win that trophy when you were in high school, eventually it's just in a box in somebody's attic. 
or you wanted to get that promotion. Eventually, you retire and somebody else gets that job. Or you wanted your 401k to get up to that level. And eventually, the stock market does what the stock market does, and it's no longer at that level. Or you wanted your person to win, or you wanted the other person to lose, or you wanted to get ahead, or you wanted to be unseen and unnoticed and just be somebody in the background, or you wanted to be seen and noticed by everybody. All of these idols uh, that are born out of our flesh and born out of our ego, ultimately, they are dissatisfactory. Whereas Christ is the one who protects us. All of the things that we give ourselves over to on such a regular basis that we think will satisfy our flesh ultimately are self-destructive. And John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols because you are protected by the one true God. Secondly, there in verse 19, he tells us that we know there is a temporary war that goes on. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, remember, in verse 18, he reminds us that, that, the, that the evil one, he wants to touch you. But we're told earlier in, uh, in the Gospels that, that the devil, our adversary, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, that the enemy comes to steal and to kill and destroy. The one thing that you can be assured of is that the devil does not want to annoy you. That's not his thing. He is completely disinterested in frustrating you. What he's interested in is annihilating you. This is what he wants to do. And, and we should not, you know, feel as if we're just playing patty cake with sin or with the adversary or with the kingdom of darkness that we live in at the moment. The world, however, wants to have ultimate sway over you. And so this is, again, a warning that John is giving to the early believers. Look, we're from another kingdom now. We belong to another citizenship now. And you've got to remember that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, from where it is easy to live to where it is difficult to live. And, and having grown up, uh, in Alabama, which I do have my passport, so I was allowed into your fair state. Um, I don't know how y'all have kept your green card up for all of this time. Uh, there was a sense growing up in the South in a Baptist church where all of my friends went to either our church or some church. Everybody I knew was a Christian. Everybody I knew uh, was at least it, it verbally you know, confessional about the idea that Jesus is important, Jesus is my Lord. We all go to the youth group. We all go to the fifth quarters after the high school football games. We all eat lots of pizza, you know, and, and so together we all are, you know, we're in this thing to win it uh, as believers. And there's a sense at which you can begin to fool yourself into thinking we have home field advantage. Like this is a Christian place. Like this is a, everybody agrees with us. This is but we as believers will never, until Jesus returns, there is, there is no home field advantage here. Uh, we are always the outsiders. We are always the one that Jesus said, and don't forget that you're actually blessed when you get persecuted for your faith. When you, you're always going to be the outsider. The whole world is under the, under the power of, of evil. And so no matter 
what it is that you did in an election cycle, whether you voted or you advocated or you campaigned or, or you completely ignored it, no matter what you do at work to try to advocate for your faith and share your faith and show off your faith and be a good corporate citizen inside of your company, no matter what you do in your neighborhood, even if you serve on the board of the HOA, which by the way, if you don't believe in the sinfulness of man, you just simply have not been to an HOA meeting. (laughs) Missionary fields abounding. That no matter where you go or how you operate, we are always in the world that is under the power of the evil one. This This is not the home field advantage for Christians. And there's all sorts of illustrations that you can give and that I can give as to reminding ourselves that we are the ambassadors to this place now and that there is this temporary war that is going on, but there's no reason for us to fear. He says, we know we are from God. We have a new family that we are a part of, and though this is not our home field, we are the ambassadors for Christ into a world that has set its face against him, and yet he constantly and consistently is transforming people in this world. One of the greatest illustrations that I have seen of this is I had the opportunity, uh, as I I get to every once in a while be on mission trips and preaching trips and other places around the world, and about a year and a half ago, I went to Southeast Asia and spent about a week and a half in Thailand and then for a few days crossed the border into the country of Myanmar, which some of you will remember as Burma, and, and crossed the border into Myanmar and spent several days ministering in some smaller villages there. And, and I had the opportunity to spend several days with this one particular pastor who had been a, a drug dealer and a drug runner in his early days. He was actually HIV positive. He would be HIV positive probably until the end of his days. Myanmar is um, not even a developing country. It is a completely undeveloped country where people just live in abject poverty. There's great uh, friction uh, and divisiveness among the population. Dozens of languages are spoken in the country. and It's just a very difficult place to live. And this one particular pastor, he just lives on, on the power of prayer because he never knows if he's going to get his meds or not. And he's got this very faithful, small congregation uh, that I spent a few days with just preaching and teaching and ministering alongside of them. And so here's this pastor who is HIV positive, uh, and, and he's going to be perennially sick for the rest of his life. He has this congregation that is just utterly and totally committed to Christ in a country where Christians make up less than 1% of the population. In fact, they make up less than half a percentage point of the overall population of Myanmar. And so I spent this whole Sunday with them and, and just preaching all day long. And on Monday morning, they said, we're going we're gonna to load up in the church van, which they had, I mean, church van, It was a very loose use of the phrase church van. Uh, We're going to load up in this vehicle and we're going to go to the, and we're going to go to the mountain village where we want you to share the gospel. Great. That's what I'm here for. Let's do it. So we get into this vehicle and, and we go up what is by far the worst road on the face of the planet. And when they said we're going to a mountain village, like they were not joking. And so we go, we bounce and bounce and up this in this rickety old vehicle for a couple of hours up to this mountain village. And I've, I think I know what a mountain village is. I didn't know what a mountain village was until we got, I mean, this is like mountain village, houses made out of bamboo, 
uh, and, and, and stilts and, you know, there's dirt roads, there's no running water, there's no electricity. This is a village that's on the, that's on the top of a mountain in Myanmar. And so we just go from home to home sharing the gospel because this pastor believes that these people need to hear the gospel because they're under the sway of the evil one. And he is actually the first person, as far as he knows, in the history of the world that has ever carried the gospel to this village. These people had never heard the gospel before. There's about 250 people that live in this village. And he had been going there for seven years and had one convert, one lady had become a Christian. But every Monday, he and members of the church go up to the mountain village, and they take food, and they would take clothing, and they would go from house to house visiting. And so it's the first time in their entire life that they had seen somebody who was not Burmese. And I do not look Burmese. And so all of the kids are following me around, and we're going from house to house, and we're sharing the gospel, and I'm... I'm sharing the gospel, he's translating it into Burmese, and then somebody in the village is translating it from Burmese into their local village dialect. So it's going through true translators. And the guy who's translating it into the local dialect is not a Christian. So that was great. He had to keep preaching the gospel every time I would go to somebody's house. He would have to tell the gospel again. So I'm like, if this guy doesn't get saved, I don't know who's going to. And so we've been to all of the houses and he said, well, now we're going to go to the house of the most powerful person in the village. And I said, oh, so like the, the, the chief. And he said, no, we were just in the chief's house. And I thought, well, who is more powerful than the chief? And he says, we're going to the home of the witch. And I was like, well, maybe you're going to the home of the witch. <laughs> but I've seen movies. And so we walk up the hill, and there on stilts, is this one lone house. And so at that point, um, I am singing every worship song I know, and I'm putting on the armor of God and you know everything that I could remember to do and praying for clarity of thought. And we walk into this house of the, the Burmese witch of the mountain village. And I mean, already on this trip, like I've seen people that they've got pet monkeys in their house and you know, and, and we've been fed all sorts of food that I have no idea where it came from. And I'm just praying the missionary prayer, God, I'll get it down, but you keep it down. And, and, and we, we go into this room and there is this tiny woman who has been around since Moby Dick was a minnow <laughs> and crouched in the corner of this room. And there's animal skulls all around posted in the room. And, I mean, you could immediately, I mean, it was a palpable, like, okay, we have now entered the presence of evil. And so somebody asks her, what are all the skulls for? And she replies, these are the sacrifices that I make once a month to keep the evil spirits that are in the mountains from attacking the village. And so they're doing blood sacrifices every single month. And so the pastor looks at me and, like, just completely nonchalantly, he says, will you preach now? sure. And so again, I start sharing the gospel with him who shares it with the member of the village, which happened to be the witch's grandson, who doesn't know Jesus yet, but I'm sure hoping he does by now, and he's sharing it with her. And at the moment that I get to the part of the gospel where I said, 
and God raised Jesus from the dead, that's when she got up. And I backed up. Because she was still little, and I think I could take her in a fair fight. And she was mad. Because in her thinking, when you die, you just want to be obliterated. And if your spirit hangs around, it means you're trapped on the earth. And so that the idea that we would be resurrected was horrifying to her. Because she's under the power of the evil one who, who, want, who has convinced her the only thing you want is just live this life, stay away from the evil spirits, and when you die, you just get out of existence. That, that's all you want. And, and it's this reminder that I got to witness to the Burmese witch in the mountain village of somewhere Myanmar that I couldn't get back to on a bet. But did you know that your neighbors hold the same opinion? That when they die, they just want to blip out of existence? That, that they just want to survive this life and just be done with it? That the fastest growing religious group in the United States of America, it's not witches and it's not Muslims and it's not Buddhists and, and very sadly, it's not Christians. The fastest religious group growing in the United States of America is referred to by sociologists as the nuns. And it's not the little ladies that wear the black robes. It's N-O-N-E-S, the people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. That's the fastest growing religious group in America. They just don't believe in anything. This is who your coworkers and your neighbors and your classmates are. This is who your family is. They just want to live their life. They want to do the best they can. And then when it's over, wash their hands of it and just blip me out of existence. I'm just, I'm just glad it's over. I had fun while I was there, but now it's over. And this is the great lie. And, and this is the great idol that many people are bowing down to. And, and he tells the early believers, we know that we are from God. We have been inherited into His kingdom, and we are ambassadors now that there is something beyond this life, and that the whole world lying under the power of the evil one has been misled, and they have been led astray, and they have been deceived into thinking that there's no hope whatsoever. And you and I are from the amba our ambassadors of a kingdom that is nothing but hope and joy and peace and restoration. See, I know because John tells us, because the Word of God has uh, commanded us to understand, we know that we are protected, that we have this new life, that we are born of God. I know, though, that we are in a temporary war where the idols uh, uh, that lead you to just despair and despondency, uh, but that ultimately that we win this war because Christ wins. And he says also, though, thirdly, that I know that I have a restored friendship with God. And this is what so many people don't believe can be possible. He says, and we know there in verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. There, this is unbelievable. This is beyond all we can imagine and all we can think, that we can know the one true God. I mean, it is somewhere within the realm of possibility of human logic that God would not just blip us all out of existence, 
that he would not just like Greek mythology Zeus, you know, thunderbolt us at any given moment because we were naughty. It is somewhere within the realm of human logical possibilities that that God, whatever he is or whoever he is or wherever he is, would maybe possibly want us after this life is over. And yet here is John who walked with Jesus saying, and we know that the Son of God has come. And we know that he has given us understanding so that, and whenever you see the, the phrase so that in the Bible, just clue in because everything he said, this is what's going to happen because of it, that the Son has come so that we may know him. I would point your attention back to John chapter 17 for just one more brief moment. In this prayer that Jesus offers before he is arrested, he, in John chapter 17, defines eternal life. You and I often define eternal life as living forever in a beautiful city that has streets that are paved with gold and walls that are made with precious jewels, and there's no need of a star in the sky that we would call the sun because the very glory of God illuminates the place, and there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more tears, and we just get to be happy forever. That is oftentimes how we think about eternal life that it is just a perpetual state of being happy. And yet Jesus, in his prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 3, actually defines eternal life for us, where he says to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why does John warn us off as little children from following idols? Because every idol in the ancient world and then the idols in the modern world promise you something for this life. If you'll make this sacrifice, your wife will be fertile, would the idol in the ancient world say. If you will make this sacrifice, your, your crops will grow and be fruitful. If you'll make this sacrifice, your armies will go to war and you will win. All of the idols of the ancient world promised you something for this life, for you to be successful. That's what really the, the most common idol that we read about, especially in the Old Testament, is Baal, B-A-A-L. And essentially, a very kind of non-scholarly definition of, of the deity of Baal is that he was the god of more. You want more children? Pray to Baal. You want more victory? Pray to Baal. You want more crops? Pray to Baal. He was the god of more. But the one true God says, let me tell you what salvation really is. It's not about having more stuff. It is about knowing the creator, king, eternal God of the universe. To know the unknowable. To be able to relate to the one who is unrelatable. That the one who is high and exalted and lifted up, the one who you are separated from because of your sin, to know that perfect, righteous, holy God, this is what we get in response that, that Jesus has died on the cross in our place for our sins and He's risen from the dead. And when He says, and if you'll put your faith in Me and repent of your sin, then you will know the one true God. Jesus has come to make all things new, but that making all things new is not just to make sure that you stay healthy and wealthy and wise, for the 80, 90, 100 years that you're going to live here on this 
you know, small mud ball circling a small star in the vastness of space. He has died and risen from the dead, and He will allow you to inherit salvation because of your faith, and He will place it into your life so that you may know Him. But the idols of this world will demand your allegiance and your surrender and your utter faith in them. And what they will trade you is a bowl of stew for all the inheritance that Jesus could give to you. They will, maybe you'll get that promotion. Maybe you'll get that relationship fixed. Maybe you'll get the 401k where you want it to be. And then all of those things will just simply vanish out from underneath you. But little children, keep yourself from these idols. For the one true God says, I want to give you a new life and a new intimacy. I want to bring you into this new family so that you can be mine and so that you can know the one true God who exists eternal in the past, eternal into the future, and that you might be his son, that you might be his daughter so that you might be his little child. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would uh, bless the hearing of your word this morning, that you would allow people to have a clear, true understanding of how you want to work in their life, that in the places where we have given ourselves over to the idols of this world, that we would recognize how false and how powerless they really are. And Lord, help us to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death, was risen victoriously from the grave. Lord, that you would give to us a sense of how you want to work in us and know the longing that you have for us to be your children, fully given over to you. So, Father, for men and women, for teenagers that need to make a step of faith, confess sin, seek your counsel and your guidance in their life, I pray that you would just simply allow us the moment of boldness and courage to call upon your name. And we know that this is what you can do in us because it's what you've been doing for so long and many others. So we praise you that you are the one who is life. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand along with me as uh, the worship team is going to lead us in one last song. But maybe there's some need in your life that you would want a pastor or a church leader to pray with you. Uh, uh, the pastor is here, and, and, and they, they would love to pray with you about whatever it is that's going on in your life, whether it's a big decision or a small decision, whether it's something that everybody knows about or it's something that nobody knows about. Maybe you have played really good at being a church member, but you not actually ever become a Christian. This morning, you want to surrender your life to Christ, or maybe you are a believer and you want to talk about what it would look like to join and be a member of the church. Uh, whatever it is that's going on in your life, personal or private, they're not going to display it for the, all the world to see, but they'll just be happy to pray with you.
point you to Jesus. So let me encourage you that as we sing, you come forward and find a friend to pray with.